Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We are going to finish uh, the first chapter in John's Gospel this morning, Lord willing. We've got a lot to cover. We're going to fly through a lot of it, but I think that it will be, hopefully, Lord willing, a seamless message through this, these last two days that are covered for us in this week-long teaching that John is doing here in John 1. We're going to finish, we're going to look at uh, chapter 1, verse 35, all the way through the end of the chapter, and we're going to finish two days. Remember, we started last week looking at this week that John, the gospel writer, chronicles for us. We're going to look at the middle of this week, uh, day three and day four. I want to give you this outline of the week just one more time. Because I think that I might have given you a faulty outline last week. I had two charts next to each other, and I picked the one, and I had specifically said, oh, this one's wrong, and this one's right. Pick this one. And I don't know why I didn't just throw out the one that was wrong, but I don't know if I gave you the wrong one. If I did, it wasn't anything heretical, so you're okay. It was just a faulty understanding of this week. So let me give it to you correctly. This is the right chart. Day one, we looked at day one of this week in John's account here. We saw it. Um, in verse 19. Actually, if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 1, verse 19. I want you to see these days so that you'll know it uh, for yourself. Um, Verse 19, remember, begins, John says that that we're moving from the theological prologue, we're moving to the historical narrative. So we had a theological prologue, we're moving to the historical narrative, this is the actual narrative, and he starts with this week um, of Jesus' life. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John, when the Jews had sent him, sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? So this day is day one. John's testimony regarding himself, John the Baptist's testimony regarding himself and ultimately regarding uh, Jesus, who Jesus is. Day two, if you drop down to verse 29, you will see the words, the next day. So day one was verses 19 through 28. Day two is verses 29 through 34. Um, This is John encountering Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, and describing what his ministry is. Day 3 is verse 35. Again, the next day, verse 35 um, all the way down to 42. This is one day. This is day 3, and we're going to be looking at this day together. And then verse 43, the next day, that's day four, and that's when Philip and Nathaniel are going to be following Jesus. We're going to look at that as well. Then day five and day six are not recorded for us explicitly with anything happening because it was more than likely just travel time because verse one of chapter two says on the third day after the day that was just referred to. So day four, uh, then day five, day six, and the third day. So that's the week long that we have. So five and six are traveling nothing's really explicitly going on that's being told by john to us jesus is traveling from bethany beyond the jordan um, all the way up to galilee so that's the week that we're looking at we looked at day one and day two last week we um, are going to look at day three and day four today and lord willing next week we're going to look at really just day seven um, the the miracle uh, at the wedding at cana so that's what we're doing we're harmonizing the gospels as well Uh, We're looking at the gospel records together. If we did not have the gospel of John, we would think that Jesus' public ministry was a year and a half long. Because the gospel of John fills in other gospel records. Remember the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seen together. They chronicled pretty much the exact same events. 
John knew that. John is writing later. John says, I know that since you've read the accounts from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I want to give you better new, not better, but I want to give you newer information that will fill out a fuller picture of who Jesus is in his ministry. I want you to see that. And so he writes, he skips over the baptism of Jesus because we know that from the Synoptic Gospels. I don't need to write that because you know that. But he gives us a week here. He actually gives us eight months to a year in John chapter 1 through 4 that's not in the Synoptic Gospels. So when we fill out the Synoptic Gospels with the record of John, we move from a year and a half public ministry that Jesus had to three and a half years of a public ministry, all because we have the Gospel of John. John, 90% of it is unique just to him. And so he, even though he knew six weeks before this, this account, this week-long account, six weeks before it, Jesus was baptized, uh, you knew that from the Synoptic Gospels. I don't need to uh, work through that, John's thinking. You knew that. And then he was tempted. Forty days. He was thrust out by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You knew that. I, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that. John, we don't need to work through that. You know that. So he says, I'm going to give you something else to prove to you again that Jesus is the Son of God. And this morning, what we're going to see in these two days, it's day three and day four, we are going to see magnificent truths about salvation, about discipleship, about evangelism, and ultimately about the nature of our King, the Son of God. So, let's dive into it together. Verse 35, if you want an outline, we're just going to take these two days, just like we did last week. So this is day three and day four. If you want to split it up a little bit more than that, you have two groups of people in these two days. Um, day three, Andrew, John, the gospel writer, and Peter are discussed. Day four, Philip and Nathaniel are discussed. So you have two days, two groups of people, all doing the exact same thing. So let's look at it together. Verse 35, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. We know who those two are because of verse 40. Uh, Andrew is one of them, and then one of them remains unnamed. And because we know that John does not name himself, John the Gospel writer does not name himself in this Gospel, we gather that it's John. So Andrew and John are the two disciples in verse 35. And he looked at Jesus as he was walking, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. He had already said that in verse 29. uh, But he says it again. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no other way for your sin to be removed other than the Lamb. You must trust in him. And John doesn't even say follow him he just says that's the lamb of god and verse 37 the two disciples heard him speak and they followed jesus i love that because again john the baptist had taught these men so well saying look it's not about me i'm the forerunner when the messiah comes i'm going to point him out to you and i want you out i want you to leave i don't want you to follow me anymore my ministry is a ministry of getting you to leave me don't follow me follow him and they did it John didn't even have to say, follow him. He had already said that. So they follow. Andrew and John decide we're going to follow. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? This whole section of scripture just lends itself to serious meditation with incredible sanctified imagination. First of all, you remember Jesus was tempted in the wilderness 40 days, 40 nights, didn't eat. Um, It's probably emaciated. Probably does not look healthy at all. 
And that's when John the Baptist says, guys, that's the Son of God. That's the Messiah. That's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He made the world. Look to him. I think Andrew and John kind of look and go, um, he needs food. He, he doesn't need followers. He needs help. He looks like he's about to pass out. Jesus turns and says, what do you seek? These disciples just heard this is the Lamb of God. And their question is, um, where are you staying? That just doesn't line up. This guy is the creator of the universe. What's one question you could ask God? If you could ask him anything, what would it be? Where do you live? That's what they're asking. Why are they asking that? I think it's twofold. I think, number one, in my sanctified imagination, I do believe that he, Jesus probably still has some of the lingering effects of being emaciated from uh, his wilderness fast. So I think that they're probably asking, do you have a home? Do you have food? Do you need a meal? You can stay with us. Are you okay? But I also think because of their word, when they say rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? I think that clues us into the fact that they want to stay with him. So it's, it's also... Where do you live? Because we want to live with you. Wherever you are, we want to be. Which, that's a beautiful picture of discipleship. Wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. Wherever he is, I want to hear him speak. I want to see him move. I want to know how he feels. Wherever he is, we want to be with you. And Jesus says, verse 39, Come and you will see. Come and you will see. This invitation is still going forth. To the ends of the earth. Jesus still says this through his servants. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. They're staying with him. They're remaining with him. In verse 37 when it says they followed Jesus. There's a specific tense that John the gospel writer uses to say followed. And it means from that moment on. They never ceased to follow him. There was a moment in time where they said, he is the one we're going to follow. We're going to devote our lives to him. And it's evidenced by them staying with him. So discipleship includes, following Jesus includes, if you want to follow Christ correctly, it includes saying, whatever you say I will do, wherever you go I want to be with you, and I will never cease to be with you. I will never cease to follow you. Wherever you go, that's where I want to be. It was about the 10th, hour. Um, this is a little tricky. If it's Roman time, then it's starting from midnight. So that would be about uh, 10 a.m. The 10th hour, just count from midnight to 10 a.m. If it's Jewish time, then the Jews would count from sunrise. So this would be about 4 p.m. The only reason I bring this up is because you'll see so many different options and opinions in study Bibles left and right. And here's the funny thing. Good men flip-flop their views. Um, one of my spiritual heroes, John MacArthur, has changed this view. He thinks uh, earlier he thought that this was um, Roman time, and then he flipped to Jewish time. And I don't even know what it is in the study Bible anymore. It's, it just flips. The reason why, and this is why I want to bring this to your attention, is John's use of time can get a little bit tricky because sometimes it seems like he's using Roman time and sometimes it seems like he's using Jewish time. The only reason why that should be understood is if you see back in verse 38, John says, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. What is he trying to do? He's trying to say, I want to reach every audience. If I just say Rabbi, 
then Greek-speaking people won't understand because that's a Jewish term. But I want them to know who they think Jesus is. So he has in his mind, I want, right, John 3.16, Christ died for the world. I want the whole world to hear this message. So I don't want to be a hindrance to them understanding and comprehending the message of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to translate words when they need translation. And I'll switch. Uh, A lot of people think he switches the time um, for his audience. Um, It's difficult to say. If you have to nail it down, I think he probably uses Roman time. um, Because in the crucifixion account, if you use Roman time, it matches everything that's in the synoptic gospel. So I think he uses Roman time. I think it's probably 10 a.m. Bottom line is what matters in verse 39 is the fact that this is such an eyewitness testimony that a disciple knows what time it was. It wasn't just, we followed him, but I don't remember when. It was, when I followed him, my life changed. And I remember the day, I remember where I was, I even remember the hour. Because my life was radically transformed following him. One of the two who heard John speak, verse 40, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. I love Andrew. Andrew is one of the most humble men in the scriptures because he's even here. The first time we're introduced to him, he's known because of his brother. He always lives in his brother's shadow, always. But he doesn't care about that. He's fine with that. He's like John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. I don't care. He's known by his brother. We all know Simon Peter. But what does he do? I just find these two verses, verse 40 and verse 41 together, just precious. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, known, Andrew's known only because we know who his brother is, and his brother's far more prominent, but his brother never would have been prominent if verse 41 hadn't happened. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which again, translated for Greek-speaking people, means Christ, both Messiah and Christ, same, same word, same idea, anointed one, king and ultimately the Savior that God was going to send. And he, verse 42, brought him, so Andrew brought Peter, Simon, to Jesus. What would have happened if Andrew had said, you know what? My brother is not my favorite, and I don't want him to meet Jesus. What if he had said, you know what? I want to figure out if Jesus truly is who he says he is before I tell anybody about him. A lot of people do that in evangelism, right? Until I figure out everything that there is to know about the Bible, which you never will. Sorry to burst your bubble. This book is inexhaustible. You will never truly understand everything. Even in heaven, we're still going to be figuring things out about who God is and about what he's done and his plan of redemption for the entire world. It's amazing. But if Andrew said, you know what, I need to figure out more before I open my mouth. We wouldn't have had Peter. If we don't have Peter, we don't have Matthew 16, the rock the testimony of Peter, the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And Jesus says, because you have given that testimony, that testimony is the rock on which I will build my church. We don't have a rock, we don't have a foundation for a church. Everything falls apart. Jesus knows that. Verse 42, he says, you are Simon, the son of John. That's who you are. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Again, Cephas this time is actually a Hebrew word. It's more of an Aramaic word. Uh, Kepha is the Aramaic word. It just changes his name from Simon to Peter. 
What I love about John is there's no explanation. Maybe in your mind there's an explanation from Matthew 16, where uh, Jesus says, you are Simon, but I tell you, Peter, rock. Um, you are a stone, but now I say you're a big foundational rock. We, we have that in our mind, but John doesn't include that here. Maybe he doesn't include it because we already have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I also think he doesn't include it because that's not the point of what's happening here. The point of what, what's happening is Jesus is the Son of God. And because he is the Son of God, he can look at you and say, you're Micah, now you're Bob. And Peter never says, uh, excuse me, I don't like that name. Um, excuse me, I, I wasn't involved in this decision-making. I, I don't think that's a good name. I know somebody like that. I, I named that. I don't want to be... He, none of that. He says, okay. He says, Okay. Which, again, John's trying to write to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Who, but the one who created you, has the authority to say, I'm giving you a new identity. And you can't argue with it. This is who you are. No one but God. No one but God. That is the first day. That's day three. Day four, in verse 43, we see a new people group, Philip and Nathaniel. So, day three... Verses 35 through 42, Andrew, Peter, and John. Day 4, uh, verses 43 through the end of the chapter. This is Philip and Nathaniel. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee. Why? Because of chapter 2, he has a wedding to go to. Uh, I think, again, in sanctified imagination, Jesus went down from Galilee, from uh, Nazareth. He went down to the Jordan River Uh, where John the Baptist was baptizing, said, I want to identify with the message of the kingdom being at hand. It is. Here I am. Uh, But I also have a wedding to go back to. So let's hurry this thing up. Boom. We move to the temptation. And then he starts getting disciples. And then he takes them to this wedding in Cana. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee because of the wedding that's in Cana in Galilee. And he found Philip. I love the, the juxtaposition here from the, the day that we already looked at in verses 35 to 42. They find Jesus. And I put find in quotation marks because they find him only because he first found them. And it's fleshed out here in verse 43. Jesus finds Philip. What a beautiful picture of salvation. We'll talk more about it at the end of the sermon. And Jesus said to him, follow me. So the first group of people said, we want to follow you. The second group of people, Jesus is going to say to them, you follow me, command, you do this, follow me. That phrase, follow me, is used 20 times in this gospel alone. And Jesus is saying it to someone every time, follow me, follow me, you follow me, command. Again, the word follow is not a momentary decision. Follow me here, let's go out to Starbucks and then you can do whatever you want to do. This is very clearly follow me and never stop. Follow me and never stop. To use the words of Jesus in Luke uh, chapter 9, I believe it is, he says, if you put your hand to the plow and then you look back thinking, maybe I shouldn't have done this, you aren't worthy to follow me. You can't. You can't let up. You can't give up. You can't slow down. You can't turn around. You have to choose today. Will you follow me and me alone? That's the choice you're making if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So he says, follow me. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida. It's the same city that Andrew and Peter were in. Bethsaida just literally means house of fishermen. Uh, We know these people are probably all fishermen. We know some of them are. And then uh, we gather from the name of the town that a lot of these people are fishermen. 
when Philip finds Nathanael, verse 45. So somewhere between verse 44 and verse 45, Philip decides to follow Jesus. And he does exactly what Andrew did. Finds somebody. He finds Nathanael. Nathanael uh, is Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels. We don't see his name as Bartholomew in the Gospel of John. John's the only one who records his name as Nathanael. Um, you'll see his name in the list of the 12 disciples as Bartholomew in the other Synoptic Gospels. Philip finds him and he says to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Same thing Andrew did. We found him. We know who he is. We've been waiting for this day and here he is. Let's follow him. But Nathanael says, verse 46, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? If I'm Philip, I I would say to him, of everything that I just said in my previous sentence, that's the one thing you're hinging on? I told you we found the, the one that was prophesied in the law. We found the one who was prophesied in the prophets. We found Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. And you're getting hung up on the fact that he's from Nazareth. So what does Philip say? Come and see. Come and see. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, it's a cul-de-sac. Um, you, you, uh, I've been to Nazareth twice now. And when you go up, it's literally, you go up to this little cul-de-sac, and it's a dead end. You, you can't keep going. You stop. Here's Nazareth. Turn around and go back. It was a Roman garrison outpost. It's where soldiers used to hang out. So, um, Jewish people didn't like the town. A lot of people thought it was a bad town. and a lot of gambling, a lot of bad things going on in that city. It's a tiny place. Nobody goes there. Plus, Nathaniel is actually from Cana, um, which is only four miles away. It's in Galilee as well. He's only four miles away. So this is like somebody being from San Francisco, rooting for the 49ers, and despising the Oakland Raiders. Um, this, is, this is hometown rivalry going on. He's, he's saying, first of all, everybody hates that city. Nobody likes that city. It's a bad city. But second of all, I'm from Cana, and you're telling me something good, namely the Messiah, the Son of God, is coming out of that city? I love Philip's response. And this, this again, evangelism. Philip's response is not defending Jesus. Philip's response is, you talk to him, he'll defend himself. I don't need to do that. You come and see. There are so many times when we want to do that. And there are times where it's necessary to do that with other people that we have, with loved ones that we know, where we need to defend the doctrine in Scripture. We need to defend the Scriptures itself. We need to defend Jesus. There are times you have to do that. But the best defense is just to say, see for yourself. Read it for yourself. Let's read it together. We'll see together. Come and see. Jesus said those words. That's what I love about Philip. Somehow Philip had heard those words, has figured these words out, and he's saying the exact same thing that his master had said. Maybe Andrew has told Philip, man, he just said, come and see. Okay, I'm going to use that word. Jesus says it, I'm going to use it. It's a great phrase. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold an Israelite, indeed in whom there is no deceit. If you have an old translation, like a King James or something like that, no guile. Just a word for no dishonesty, no, no deceit, no two natures. You are who you are. Why does he say that? Well, I think it could be the fact that he had just heard or maybe knew that Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's almost like Jesus is looking at that and saying, 
Remember the Pharisees? Uh, the, the Pharisees said one thing and meant something completely different. Uh, double-minded, um, whitewashed tombs, put on a certain appearance, but that's not who they truly were. And here comes Nathaniel, who says, you know what? I don't like Nazarites. Just, I want to let it be known. It's almost like Jesus says, you know what? I can work with that. <laughs> I can work with that. Somebody, somebody is going to speak their mind, be honest. You're not going to try and cover up. You're going to say what the truth is. And I'll give you the true truth to say, to speak. Could be that. Could also be that this section of scripture is just, it's a little fuzzy. We know the point of it. We don't know all the specifics of it. The point of what's happening is seen in verse 48. When Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, Nathanael says, how do you know me? In our vernacular, you don't know me. And Jesus answers and says to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael's answer is, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So we don't know the specifics. This is one of those passages we'll just have to wait to look at the DVD in heaven because we don't know the specifics of what's happening. But we know that what Jesus is referring to is something that only Nathanael and God know about. Therefore, Jesus has to be God. That's what Jesus is saying. I know something that only happened between you and God. And maybe, again, in sanctified imagination, maybe Nathaniel is sitting under the fig tree and he's reading Genesis 28, which we're going to get to in a little bit. That's what the illusion that Jesus is going to make of Jacob's ladder. Uh, that's coming. Maybe he's reading Genesis 28 and he's reading this account and he's saying, God, I pray that you would send us the Messiah. I have readied my heart. I have been baptized. I have repented of sin. I am honest in my soul that I need a Savior. I'm not like Jacob. Jacob is a deceiver. He's known by that title, the deceiver, multiple times in the book of Genesis. Maybe that's why Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Some translations actually say, Behold, true Israel in whom there is no Jacob. No deception, no deceiver. This is the true Israelite. Just like Jacob was given the name Israel. Be someone you aren't now, but you can become. Same thing. Simon, you are a tiny little pebble, but I'm going to call you Peter, which is rock. You're not that now, but Jesus looks at him and says, I know what you will become. I'm going to make you that. I'm going to make you that. Whatever it was, there's, there's so many different opinions as to What's happening under the fig tree? When it happened? Some people say it happened as early as uh, Nathaniel's birth. Uh, Some people say there there was a tradition for a long time that said um, Jesus is referring to Nathaniel's mother who hid Nathaniel under a fig tree when Herod gave the order to slaughter the babies. Um, That's really nice. It's cute. And I wish it would fit because it's awesome. I don't think it fits because Nathaniel's from Cana and Herod wasn't slaughtering babies up in Cana. He was slaughtering babies in in the region of Bethlehem in Judea. So... I don't think it fits. But whatever it is, Nathaniel in verse 49 is blown away. Obviously, you know me like only God can. Therefore, you must be God. Jesus answers in verse 50, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
truly, truly is a phrase that John absolutely loves 25 times in the Gospel of John. Solemnly truthful, I tell you. You can take this to the bank. This is a true statement. You will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what's going on here? This is a sermon in and of itself, and I told you we needed to fly, so we can't turn here. You can write it down, Genesis 28. Write it down, read it. You'll see what's going on here. Jacob, you remember, he gets tired, so tired that he sleeps on a rock. How tired do you have to be to have a rock be comfortable for your head? Sleeps on a rock, conks out, he's gone, and then he has a dream. And the dream is angels ascending and descending on a ladder from heaven to earth. What's the point of the dream? The point of the dream is... Uh, God is telling Jacob, uh, Jacob is weary, Jacob's running, he's on the run for his life. He's thinking, how can the promise of Abraham or promise of God to Abraham, of uh, the people of Abraham being descendants that are as numerous as the sands of the sea, how could that be possible? I'm going to be killed. Um, I'm just running around. God, where are you? That's basically the question. And God gives him a vision to say, I- I'm right here. My angels are going to support you. Um, I'm going to help you. I'm here. And I will make my promises come true. It will happen. Don't worry. So what's happening here in verse 51? I think many things. I think, number one, Jesus is saying, just as God kept his promise and was was giving a sign of, no, you are not going to die. I'm going to keep my promise to your people. So, too, he's saying, through Jesus, I'm going to keep my promise that a Messiah will come and will save you and will redeem you. I also think that there's an amazing reference to the cross here because Jesus says that angels are ascending and descending not on the ladder. Literally, it's a staircase in the Hebrew in Genesis 28. It's not on a ladder. It's on a staircase. But even here, it's not on a ladder or a staircase. Who is the staircase? They descend on the Son of Man, meaning what? I am the mediator between heaven and earth. I am the gap between those two worlds. He'll say it a different way in, later in the Gospel of John. I am the way, the only way, the only truth, the only life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am that mediator. That's a beautiful picture. Angels are ascending and descending on me. Through my blood-bought covenant, you are going to receive blessings. And through my blood-bought covenant, you will receive access to the Father. Just like Jacob experienced the supernatural revelation and that amazing dream in Genesis 28, so too the disciples, Jesus says, you're going to see the same thing and even more. You're going to see amazing signs that I am who I say I am. No doubt, no question, you will know without a shadow of a doubt. That's the narrative. Now, what's the point? This is really, I guess you could say that was the introduction. Um, But let's just, let's conclude it this way. Number one, this passage deals with evangelism. We could do an entire sermon on evangelism from this passage, and I would love to. The only problem is, number one, I don't think that's the point of this, this passage. I think that's a secondary issue. And number two, I think if you get the point of this passage, evangelism will just be natural. I think if you understand Jesus Christ for who he is, you won't be able to help yourself by going to your friends and saying, we found the Son of God. That's the point of this passage. If you know who Jesus is, you can't help but share him with others. There's an amazing truth about evangelism all throughout this section. 
But because of time, we're going to move on to the other implications. Number two, salvation. This passage deals with salvation. Let me give you three points in how this deals with salvation. Number one, man must see their need in order to be saved. You have to understand your need for a Savior in order to be saved. Where do I get that? I get that from both groups saying, we have found the Messiah, we have found the Christ, we have found the one who has written in Moses and the law, the prophets. Why are they looking for this man? They're looking for him because they know that there was a prophet that was to come that would explain the ways of God in which they were not yet walking in. They needed somebody to tell them how to live. They needed someone to save them from their sins. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only if you come to, your hand, to, to Christ with your hands empty, saying, I have nothing to offer you. Poor in spirit, just literally bankrupt in your soul. I cannot give Jesus anything that would make me worthy of being accepted by the God of the universe. I can't do that. All I have to offer him, the only thing that's in my hands is my sin. Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. You must see your need. Remember a long time ago, I was teaching in youth ministry, and I had a kid that came up to me and said, you know what, Patrick, that's great for you. I don't believe any of it, and this is the reason why. I think that Jesus is just your crutch. I think this whole religion thing is just a crutch. You have some emotional problem. I'm I'm looking at this kid going, who are you? Like, this is amazing. And I said, no, you're wrong. Jesus isn't my crutch. Because if you were a crutch, I could still get around on one leg. I could still do some movement. Jesus is an ambulance that's carrying a dead body. Jesus is somebody who would revive the dead. I, Ephesians 2 says, I am dead apart from Jesus. I cannot make spiritual decisions to get to God. I can't do it. So the only way that I can be saved is if, number one, I see my need for a Savior. Why are these people so expectant and desirous of this man? It's because of what John said in Verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Unless you know that you have sin and unless you are willing to leave that sin at the foot of the cross and repent and turn. That was the message that Jesus preached time and time again. That was the message of John. That's the message of Peter and Paul. Repent and believe. Number two, Jesus alone can meet that need. So you must see your need. Jesus alone can meet that need. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The only way that your sin can be removed is if the Lamb of God takes it away. He is the way, the truth, the life, John 14, 6. No one goes to the Father except through him. And number three, man must follow Jesus. You must follow Jesus. True salvation is not earned by you following Jesus. True salvation is proven by you following Jesus. For instance, what if Philip had said, hey, I think you are the Messiah. I think you are the Son of God. Good. And Jesus says, follow me. He says, you know what? I'm good with just believing. <laughs> I'm good with just hanging here. I'll keep eating. I'll keep having my, my life. I'll keep fishing. I'll keep doing my thing. You go get other disciples. That happened in the Gospels. That happened with the rich young ruler. I want to follow you. What do I need to do to get to heaven? And Jesus ends up giving him a test of what he truly wants. And in the test, the man ends up walking away sad, not following Jesus. You must follow Jesus to be a disciple. Following Jesus proves that you are truly saved. So what does it mean to be a disciple? 
We see three implications of discipleship in this passage as well. In discipleship, once you're following Jesus, I mean, these work for outside of following Jesus. These work for becoming saved. But number one, under the heading of discipleship. So we've seen evangelism. We've seen salvation. We've seen discipleship. Um, In discipleship, number one, Jesus knows everything about us. Inside and out with Nathaniel. Jesus says, behold, an Israelite. Indeed, there is no deceit. So I know what's inside of you. No deceit. Doesn't mean you're sinless. Um, That's why I think, again, it's maybe hinging off of what was just said. Um, I know what's inside of you. And then I also know you are under under the fig tree. I know what's outside of you. I know where you are. I know what's going on inside. I know what's going on outside. I know everything about you. And brothers and sisters, that is both terrifying and comforting. It's terrifying that the God of the universe knows every thought that you are thinking. Even before you say a word, he knows what you're going to say. That's terrifying. And it's also incredibly comforting to be able to say God knows everything that's going on. God knows everything. He sees, he cares, he loves, he knows it all. Number two, not only does Jesus know everything about us, number two, Jesus has the right to change our identity. We already covered this a little bit. When Jesus says, you're Simon, now you're Peter. Peter doesn't argue. It's not like Jesus is giving him an option. (laughs) This is bad evangelism 101. Hey, you're this guy now. No, no, Jesus, be softer. Like, chill out a little bit. No. The Son of God has every right to change your identity, and he will. If you are saved, he changes your identity. Not only just who you are from an unrighteous, um, dead guilty, vile, helpless sinner to a saint, not sinless, but now somebody who's being set apart and sanctified. Not only does he do that, but Revelation 2, verse 17, literally says he gives every new believer a new name. Once you get saved, you get a new name. And it's a name that only you and God know. The name that's about transformation and identity. And only God and you will know that name in heaven for all of eternity. Just what he did with Peter, he's already done with you in in heaven. And you'll finally see it when you see him face to face. He has every right to change our identity. And here's the reality of that. Some of us go kicking and screaming into that identity change. Maybe every day we kick against our new identity. Here's the truth. There is no identity for your life better than the one Jesus gives you. There is no identity for your life better than the one that Jesus gives to you. Number three, finally, Jesus has the right to command our allegiance. Jesus has the right to command our allegiance. He just says, follow me, expecting people to obey. Um, Because he's God? He can do that. Again, why is John writing? He's writing to prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in that and following him like these disciples are, you would have life in his name. So how better to prove that this man is God than to say, he just goes up to people and says, follow me. You have a new identity. They do. They're changed. This does not mean, can I, I just want to bring clarity to this. This does not mean that we don't choose Jesus. I want to be careful in this. Remember in day three, verses 35 to 42, these disciples choose to follow. They did. And you and I have to make a volitional decision to follow Jesus. We have to choose that. But that needs to be understood 
with the backdrop of the rest of Scripture that tells us, like John 15, just including John's gospel, okay? John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me. Jesus talking, I chose you. Oh, you thought you were following me. Look at me, I follow Jesus. The only reason you're following is because I chose you first. You have to make a volitional decision, but the only way you can make that decision is if Jesus says, I'm choosing you first. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to Jesus unless God says, go. By the way, the opposite of that, of that is true. If God says, you're coming to me, nobody can say, I don't want to. Think about Saul slash Paul in Acts. Hey, you're on my team. Okay. <laughs> Instantly. Okay. Okay. That's why John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives to me will come. So Jesus has every right to command our allegiance. The question is, how do you follow Jesus? Do you follow him from a distance? Do you follow him at all? Do you believe his words but choose not to follow? If you do, that would be like Nathaniel or Philip or Andrew or John or Peter saying, I think that you are who you claim to be, but it doesn't change anything about the way that I live. That's really one of the reasons why we come to the Lord's Supper. We come to say, do I truly follow Jesus? Um, Do I follow him? Is my heart so given to who he is and what he has done for me that he commands my allegiance? He commands everything that I do. I hang on his every word. Are we as eager to follow Jesus in the same way that Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, and Nathaniel, they see this guy that probably is not looking that good to begin with, And they say, we'll follow him. We will. Are we that eager? Do we believe that Jesus can take anyone, fishermen included, anybody, and turn them into somebody who can change the world? It's through these people that God changes the world. These are nobodies, uneducated, from no-name towns. And God says, I want to use you. I'm going to change you. Do you follow Jesus that way? Can I just plead with you? Um, we're going to sing a song, and as we sing, the men are going to pass out these elements. These elements remind us of our need for a Savior, that a Savior was provided, and that we have to follow him. So, let's think about those three things as we take these elements. We'll, we'll pass them out, hold them, we'll take them together. Do you understand your need for a Savior? Do you understand sin for what it truly is? And have you turned from it? Repent, John said, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter and Paul all preach, repent. Turn from that which Jesus died to save you from. And then see the provision made at the cross. See the fact that Jesus was crushed as the lamb in your place so that you would not have to bear an ounce of the wrath of God. And then, how are we doing following him? That's one of the most blessed things about this time at the Lord's Supper. It's it's an examination. Paul says that we should be careful to examine ourselves. How are we doing in following? It doesn't mean we have to be perfect. We can't be, or else we would be saying we don't need a Savior. But the question is, are you repenting? Are you turning? Is Jesus Lord of your life? And if there is sin that you are harboring, now is the time to say, I repent, I turn, 
Jesus, you died to free me from it. And I will follow you the way you've asked me to follow you. God, we thank you so much for your grace that enables us to know your calling. We choose. Yes, we do. But we only choose you because you first chose us. We love you. Yes, we do. But we only love you because you first loved us. So, Father, as we sing about that love, I pray that we would be reminded yet again of how far short we fall and how strong and far the reach of your grace truly is. God, we thank you for grace. May we enjoy it now as we celebrate. And as we examine and look inward, I pray that ultimately we would look upward and outward to you. There is no reason in and of ourselves that you would choose. So may we look to you, the reason why you chose us, your glory and your grace alone. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.